I guess what I'm uh, working off of is a is a notion that music can have a profound impact emotionally, spiritually, socially on people and on communities. And it's important to be able to, to offer that impact to people in a broad sense. So I, I guess I'm, I'm saying that, it, you know, in our case, the, the role of the artist is, is to offer something to the world and to let, let that sense of, of offering and uh, in invitation become part of my artistry, part of my practice of, of being a musician in the world. That was violinist and violist Sebastian Ruth talking about his commitment to public engagement as a musician in urban areas of Providence, Rhode Island. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Sebastian Ruth is a founding member of both the Providence String Quartet and Community Music Works an organization based on the idea that musicians can play a significant role in the public life of a community. Through the permanent residency of the Providence String Quartet, Community Music Works provides free after-school music education and performance programs. Now in its 14th year, its success has been staggering. In fact, Community Music Works was honored by the White House with the 2010 National Arts and Humanities Youth Program Award and Sebastian Ruth himself received a 2010 MacArthur Genius Grant. I had the opportunity to speak with Sebastian Ruth recently. I began our conversation by asking him to tell me a little bit more about the ideas behind Community Music Works. Community Music Works is a connection between professional musicians and kids and their families in several urban communities in Providence, Rhode Island. We build a set of programs around a professional string quartet and in addition to quartet a collection of musicians who are living working teaching performing in these urban communities where we work and with the idea that this is about establishing a career and a, a life for professional musicians that meaningfully engages with community and, and meaningfully engages with the notion of public service it's in many ways a very radical idea when we think about the the culture that happens at many conservatories. It's almost a monastic culture. Mm -hmm. And there's a way you're just placing yourself in opposition to that. Yeah. I mean, it's the idea is to really reconceive of the role of a, a musician in the 21st century and to say, what is it essentially that we want to do? What is it that essentially we can do as we're practicing and performing music? And we're living this experiment of saying that musicianship is truly a, a publicly engaged activity. And when you're on any concert stage, you're looking to engage and to communicate with your audience. And this isn't mere entertainment at its best. This is, you know, when you've been part of, as an audience member or as a performer, been part of a really deeply moving performance, it's transformative. And we're trying to just geographically move those sets of experiences out of the traditional venues of concert halls and into community settings where we don't fundamentally change the activity of practicing and rehearsing and performing music but by doing it in a storefront, in um, unusual community settings, we're making Beethoven string quartets part of the normal fabric of 
of a, of a community's life. And at the same time, invigorating ourselves as, as musicians because we are, are trying to sort of live a reciprocal relationship with a community where as performers and as educators, we're not wedded to a fixed notion of what classical music is, but rather taking a set of tools in playing the instruments of the string quartet and taking a set of uh, repertoire and making experiences happen on a daily basis that, that uses these tools in some very traditional ways and also some new ways. It's very interesting because... I say this as somebody who very much enjoys going to concerts and listening to classical music there. But nonetheless, you enter that concert hall and there is a way in which it's almost like a church where there's prescribed behavior. And it's very easy to understand how people who aren't familiar with it can feel intimidated by it and just begin to question the whole behavior around being there rather than being able to relax and actually listen to the music. Right. Right. And I think fundamentally, my sense is the problem isn't necessarily in the concert hall. And in myself, I, I quite enjoy the magic of stillness when you have a thousand people seated together, hanging on every note of a, of a performance that's going on on a stage. I think there's something quite beautiful about, about that moment. The, the challenge is, is one of, of belonging. And yeah. if Hispanic child... Uh, whose parents aren't familiar with this kind of art form, sits there with his or her parents and doesn't feel that he belongs, then it becomes this alienating experience. You look around and there there aren't people who look like you sitting in this audience. There, as you say, there's a set of, of norms about how you're supposed to behave and that sort of consumes your whole experience. And, and you don't feel like you belong. And, and there's alongside that, there's this issue of... of cost and how much it costs to, to go to oh, a concert. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not to say that it's the only prohibiting factor. You know, low-income families that we work with will still pay money to go to entertainment. But if you're going to pay money, you're going to go to a place where you don't feel like you belong, And the, let alone just the sort of language of music and, and whether that feels accessible or not. But if you, if you kind of feel like you're an other in this space, you're not going to opt for that experience again, probably. So one of the programs we do is to bring families, both kids and their parents, to concerts, but we surround it by a social experience. We have a pizza party beforehand, and a group of teachers c goes with the families to these concerts, and we do some talking beforehand about what the music is. We do some talking at intermission about what what's going on, and, and try to just be a guide to the experience so that it is something that you've, you know, a family comes to one of these concerts with us and feels like they've got the skill set. They, they know what they're there for. For and they have things to listen for. And hopefully then, uh, having been introduced to it, uh, families may take themselves back and feel like, you know, as with anything, it's like if you know something about it, you can feel like you, you belong there. Part of what they get to know by being involved in community music works is the process of how music is played, how it's created, how it's made. Yeah. So you, you open that process up for these kids. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and importantly, it's also, in in most cases, parents of the students that we work with haven't themselves played a classical instrument or studied one. So I think that the magical moments for me are when the student is the tour guide for their parent and say, oh, you know, this is what I'm seeing in the viola. And it's like, look at that. Would you look at that? And the, and the parent is the one sort of being introduced to it by the young person. But yes, yeah, certainly once 
that be true of, of anyone, not just our students. But Absolutely. But the more you, um, the more experience you have having played or, or listened to many times, the, the more you can take away from it. How did this begin, Sebastian? How did you start this? So I started Community Music Works with a $10,000 fellowship from Brown University, where I'd been an undergrad, and specifically from the Center for Public Service called the Swearer Center. And the Swearer Center was offering a one-year public service fellowship to graduating seniors to start a, a public service project domestically or internationally that was connected to an existing community organization. So the backstory for me was that I, I am a string player. I play violin and viola and knew that string quartet playing was something that I was passionate about and wanted to do. Also knew that that there was a challenge in the traditional career path, that I, I wasn't necessarily drawn to a typical career in which I felt that it, by participating in this art form, I'd be participating in an exclusive cultural experience. And yet the music it, itself and the experiences of listening and playing it, I didn't think were in any way exclusive. But the, as we were just, just talking about, the aura and the um, norms and, and kind of costs and et cetera associated with classical music tends to be exclusionary. So that was, that was one set of impulses for me was trying to find a different way to have a career as a musician. Another set of impulses came from studying education and really getting excited about the idea that education can be a strategy for addressing social justice issues in our country, but specifically in cities. And that access to a, a set of educational experiences for young people that really raised questions of, of social justice and that gave kids an opportunity through a, a world of ideas to become people they might not have expected they could become. This set of ideas was, was really fascinating to me. And so I, I began to, to make the, this connection between the possibility of music study and performance together in a community setting, being a place that young people could access a, a world of ideas and a set of mentors in us as, as professionals that would have a, a long-term impact on how they grow up and how they see themselves in the world. So those, those ideas were the basis of this fellowship proposal. My now wife, Mina Choi, is a violinist who was in that quartet with me, and she and I and our, and our cellist, Nahani Rouse. We're still in town the, the year after graduation, and we're playing informally. And this in, is in Providence. You went to Brown. In Providence. Yes. And so our fourth colleague was out of the country doing doing some other things. But we started informally playing quartets. The fellowship was a, a chance for me to, to get some ideas started. And then within a couple of years, it became clear that this was something more than a temporary project, that it was something that needed to grow and that we needed to, to build a nonprofit organization around so that it could really uh, mature. How did you find the students at first? Did you just, and I'm not being facetious, I'm really curious, did you just show up at a community center with your instruments saying, hey? Yeah, well, at first I was working with a small arts center that was attached to a church, mm -hmm. which for for reasons that sort of predated my, my uh, participation there, was facing some challenges and closed within a first couple of months. So I was a little bit out of luck there. I had, I had positioned myself with this group and then they folded. 
And so by virtue of having been in the neighborhood a couple months and driving past a community center called the West End Community Center in Providence, it seemed to, ha- to have the kind of activity and the hub of community life that I was really interested in. And, and so I, as you say, walked in with my instrument one day and said, hey, got this. Oh, you really did. I did. Oh, okay. I did. Right off the street. I just, I, I walked in, I said, I've got this program, got my own funding, looking to offer free uh, music lessons and as a part of a bigger program. And would you be interested in working with me? And, and they said yes immediately, which was, which was luck. It was, they had turned out been looking for something that would be an alternative to the basketball programs that they mostly had for their young people. And they embraced it immediately, which in, in hindsight was a huge opportunity for me and for developing this program because that community center was really deeply in a position of trust and a sort of deeply important place, especially in the black and Latino community in Providence. And the director at the time, a woman named Deb Wyatt, uh, was you know, informally referred to by politicians around town as the mayor of the West End of Providence. He was a real community leader. And so by virtue of them bringing me on and, and sort of bringing me under their wing, I think I gained a lot of trust and credibility in the community that I probably would have had to work for many years to achieve otherwise. So you aligned yourself with someone with very deep roots in that community. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, Community Music Works is very well known, and you have a waiting list of kids who who want to study with you. What was it like in the beginning? How did you get kids interested? That was surprisingly easy. We, as a, as a quartet, went into the community center. We went into a couple of other community programs and just played a 20-minute performance and talked about our instruments and talked about the music we were playing, I think, at the time was a Mozart string quartet, and put out a sign-up sheet. And kids, you know, kids have a natural curiosity about things, right? But but also these boxes of wood that sing, and it's like, you could do this. Do you want to try it? And most times, the kids signed up just out of sort of excitement for trying something. That's how we got started. Certainly, once kids realize how hard it is, their interest level tends to drop. And they think, oh, gosh, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. (laughs) But over the years, we've addressed that by encouraging them to stick it out till our first performance. Once they have that feeling of pride and that sense of accomplishment, that sense that people are clapping for their accomplishments, they they tend to get get psyched about it again. Now, I I feel the need to emphasize that you're not screening these kids for talent. You're not looking for the next Yasha Heifetz or Yo-Yo Ma. No, this is true. Yeah, it's it's this creative tension that we live with on a daily basis, which is we are opting to make this a publicly available, cast the net very wide, anyone who would like to have this experience is welcome, and yet also hold high expectations for the kids and know in our minds that they could become the next Yasha Heifetz, as you say, and provide them with the tools they would need to get there. So I describe this as a creative tension because on the one hand, if the latter was our goal only, if our, if our goal was to produce great musicians, we would structure things radically differently. And some programs in this country do have that as a goal. They, they have as a goal enabling people f- who, from limited means to have great careers in classical music. And certainly there's, there's a ton of validity there and, and, and some great programs exist. But by not setting that as our primary goal and, and setting our, our goal that this is something that could be an excellent opportunity for everyone, we don't structure the program but you know with rigid screening out processes and 
auditions and competition, nor do we penalize people if their if their interest sags or if they miss a week. Certainly, we we work very hard to make sure people's attendance is good, and I don't, I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But we're sort of living these two two goals simultaneously, and the end in my mind is that musicians who come out of community music works will be hopefully very interesting people to listen to. Um, and we haven't talked much about the other elements of our curriculum yet, but but in addition to studying the basics of, of string instruments, kids are also working, especially teenagers, in discussions, in group discussions about issues of social justice, issues of um, oppression in our communities. I'm sorry, this is the group that you call Phase 2? That's right, yeah. This year we're doing a series of discussions on important moments of musical protest throughout history, starting with Haydn's Farewell Symphony and moving as far forward as the freedom songs of the 1960s civil rights movement and even more recent than that. And so, so that students are sort of engaging with this idea that as artists we are both public intellectuals, but as artists we also have an important public role so that kids begin to understand that aspect that we're trying to live as professionals as well. Can you explain how the whole program works? Take me through it. I have a daughter. She's accepted. Let's say she's 10 years old. What can I expect? Right. So the basis is that everyone has a private lesson in violin, viola, or cello, and that's once a week. On Fridays, everyone comes together, and this is a new program for us this year for what we call All Play Day or All Play Fridays, where uh, your daughter would have an hour-long studio class where two teachers and all of their students combined to to do master classes and, and group pieces and other kinds of playing opportunities together. We all have a, a sort of big community break and snack and uh, announcements and dancing sometimes. And then we have another hour of ensembles. So that's a two-and-a-half-hour experience every Friday. Uh, periodically throughout the year, we have a Saturday workshop Traditionally, we've had musicians coming in from lots of different uh, musical styles and backgrounds to, to do an interactive performance with our kids. Once a month or so, there's an opportunity to take the, to, for family to go on a concert trip. The Phase 2 students are getting together Thursday nights for these discussions I mentioned. Our um, students have uh, elective opportunities, like to study uh, fiddle styles, to study improvisation, to work in a media lab doing electronic music. And then our phase three students, who are the oldest and most advanced, play performances publicly for pay. So they're in small chamber ensembles, quartets or duos or trios, and are hired to to play gigs around Providence, around the state, and, and they're actually paid for that work. We we do need to say that your outfit is in a storefront so that it's readily visible from the street. And people can hear as well because you have speakers outside. That's right. So about nine years ago, we we rented this storefront to be our headquarters, a rehearsal space, our meeting space, a little performance space right on the street in the heart of one of the neighborhoods we work in. And over the years, we've, we've outgrown the one, and we have now two storefronts adjacent to each other and a, another space within the same building. We've grown to expect that musicians and musicianship are part of the normal fabric of a community's life. The hope is that as kids can feel that by having this language of music that they have access to a global community of other musicians. 
and that that itself is a real kind of world-expanding notion and a real world-expanding sense of possibility. I'm assuming that's one of the ways, but one of the many ways you see chamber music changing the way these kids see themselves in the world. Right, right. No, absolutely. And and uh, for for any of us who have participated in, in music, and it's certainly it's not limited to music, but when you're involved in an, in an intense activity like music, there is a, a sense of community among peers, and the, the world of music is somewhat small, and so it's not unlikely that you'd have friends who know friends in faraway places, and you may meet them, and, and you travel, and you may have a network of people there, and there, there's a sense that there's a little bit of a portal experience. You know, you, you, you enter community music works, and you become a musician, and then, and then there are friends in faraway places that, that you can consider your own. And in the meanwhile, you're also, and you, I mean, the broad you, the, the Providence String Quartet, of which you're a founding member, you're all committed to expanding your own musical repertoire and your own development as a musician. Yeah. I mean, and this is the experiment we're trying to live. And some others have joined us in this experiment as well. There's a, there's a fantastic group in New Haven, Connecticut, called Music Haven, that's centered around a string quartet. And there's another group in Boston called the Boston Public Quartet. There's a group in Pawtucket called the Rhode Island Fiddle Project, which is the closest geographically, but also very close because it's started by a fellow from our program, well, a training program where people come and work with us for two years. So there's several groups now living this experiment. And the experiment is to say, this is not altruism. This is not about selfless service. This is about positioning your career in such a way that your fulfillment artistically is located literally in a place where your own pursuits are helping other people as well and and vice versa and their their interest and their pursuits are helping your musicianship and their enthusiasm for it so it's a challenge because we make ourselves very busy trying to do a lot of things with our educational program but we also maintain a, a concert series of our own that we play. We accept invitations to play in other professional settings on other people's concert series. And uh, we push ourselves to continue to develop as, as individuals as well through um, annual what we call practice retreats. We give everyone a week off a year to take on a, a personal development project, whether it's uh, taking some lessons or preparing a recital or something. I had the opportunity last year to take a three-month sabbatical as well as the first of that sort that we had done in the organization. And that was a chance for me to just to go back and, and put on a sort of single hat and just be a violinist and violist for a few months and study and, and perform. So it's very much about this living experiment of being able to have a career as musicians that is also having this hopefully profound impact on a community. Well, Community Music Works has received many awards, many prizes. We would be here for an hour if I listed them all, Sebastian. But one of them recently was an NEA grant. Yeah. We have some very generous support from the NEA over the course of several years, particularly in the Access to Artistic Excellence program recently, and then uh, an American Masterworks grant to learn and perform, in this case, a series of American string quartets that span the 20th century from 1896 up through 1994. Uh, we'll be doing a series of these American masterworks over the course of this current season, funded by the NEA. And then, in addition, we recently won this 
uh, National Arts and Humanities Youth Program Award. Yes, and you went to the White House to pick it up. We did. It was uh, it was well worth the trip. <laughs> and but, quite a group of you. How many how many kids went? Well, to the White House, there were just two of us, one adult and one student. But we brought a busload of about 30 staff, students, and parents to do a series of performances around Washington the day of the White House ceremony. So after a couple of us got to go to the White House and meet Michelle Obama and accept this award, the others were getting a tour of the Capitol at that time. And then afterward, we all met up at the NEA and played a performance uh, there in the old post office building for NEA staffers and other folks in the building. Of which I was a part of that very appreciative audience. It was great. It was wonderful. We um, played that in Washington, the NEA, but also at the um, CITAR Center for the Arts, a youth program in Washington. And then at the national, on the National Mall, the site of the new Martin Luther King Memorial, uh, which is still under construction, but which we felt would be a, a sort of symbolic gesture of paying uh, tribute to, to Dr. King and to the ideas and the words that he uh, represents still. And so it was a sort of informal performance outside the walls of this new memorial that hopefully will live on in our kids' memories. And I, as I told them at the time, hopefully when they come back as grandparents and they bring their kids to the National Mall and they see this memorial with all the beautiful stones will say, I was here, you know, we were laying down a musical cornerstone to this place in 2010. Very nice. Sebastian Ruth, thank you so much. And many, many congratulations. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was musician and MacArthur Genius Grant recipient Sebastian Ruth. He was talking about community music works. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Ravel's String Quartet, performed by the Providence String Quartet. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on Beyond Campus and search for the National Endowment for the Arts. Next time, a conversation with Shirley Sneavy about Native American media arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.